Hello, wonderful listeners of Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. It's November, which means that in the US, we're celebrating Thanksgiving at the end of the month. It's a season to express our gratitude, and a great way to express gratitude is to pay it forward. And this is why I have chosen to support a wonderful initiative by Will Reynolds, a leader that you will hear from in the month of December, and somebody who in his life has actually shown and walked the walk of paying things forward. I am supporting his initiative two ways. First of all, I have made a donation, And second, I'm going to turn the microphone over to him to tell you what he's doing. After you hear that, I'm going to quickly come back and tell you where you can make a donation to support it. Howdy, friends. I'm Will Reynolds, and I'm sleeping outside on November 19th to raise awareness, but also to raise a boatload of money for homeless youth in the city of Philadelphia. And the reason why this is important to me is we have a cutoff date. When it's your 18th birthday, you're technically an adult. So that means like if you're 17 years old and 364 days, we have support systems for those youth. If you're one day later, there's a lot fewer resources and we throw those youth into adult homeless facilities with a lot less government support. And that is why I'm sleeping outside because the Covenant House, for whom I've been sleeping outside for 12 years to raise money for homeless youth in our city, they focus specifically on that 18 to 22-year-old youth who's probably still more like a kid than they are like an adult. And now they just don't have as many resources. So that's why I'm sleeping out. Would appreciate your support. Thanks so much. As you can tell, it's a wonderful cause. Let me just share what resonated with me on this and why I chose it as something to support this month. The first thing is the fact that it is local to his own community. The second thing is that he's actually doing an action that puts him on the same level as the people that he's helping. And so it shows a tremendous amount of empathy. Third and final is the fact that, as you have heard, he's been doing this for 12 or 13 years, which shows a tremendous amount of commitment and consistency. So if you want to help to donate, go to bit.ly backslash helpwill1122, spelled B-I-T dot L-Y backslash H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Yes, Will's name is spelled with only one L. So once again, it will be H-E-L-P-W-I-L-1122. Thank you so much. Any donation helps. It's a sign of the lack of health in the system. If people at the lower rungs of the ladder, and this is where this is coming from, right, is employees who don't feel empowered to orchestrate organizational change that feels healthy for them. If their only avenue is to close the laptop at 5 p.m. and walk out and to only do the bare minimum, it's a message. If you're a leader, seeing that either in your organization or just in the macro environment, listening to that and saying, okay, what is that telling me? Like, what is it that is causing this groundswell? You could blame it on TikTok, because I think that was where that term came up was in a viral TikTok video. But it's real. Where there's smoke, there's fire. If we've been hearing about burnout for years, and I'm sure the pandemic fanned the flames, but they, the embers already existed, and quiet quitting is the latest sign of it, are we doing something about it? Welcome, I am your host, Tino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspirations and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Over the past couple of episodes, we covered topics that relate to our relationship with work, our career, and the workplace. 
We discussed bullying in the workplace with Zanika Chatman, and we talked about how to proactively manage your career with Tonya Montella. With this episode, we have addressed another aspect of our relationship with work, burnout. My guest is my friend Jim Young, also known as The Centered Coach. Jim had a long career in tech, rising in his companies until he was the president, and then he experienced a serious burnout that led him to a recalibration of his life and priorities. Now he is a coach and he specializes in burnout and DEI work. We had a very frank and candid conversation about his experience, and then we talked about what people and companies can do to prevent burnout and what to do when you experience it. And given that right now there is a big debate about the so-called quiet quitting, we also took a little bit of time to share our perspective on it. One final thing. Jim published a book on burnout that is called Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout. And I will send a copy of the book to my favorite review left in Apple Podcasts in September. So go ahead and review away. And now enjoy the episode. I'm excited to have you go on the show and I'm going to share this with our audience. You and I met in a course and I feel that even though we ended up, you know, we are doing slightly different things. I feel we went through the same steps of the process at the same time. And so why don't you share with our listeners sort of your story, what you're doing now, but most importantly, how you got here? Sure. I'll, I'll try and give you the, the short version of that. What I'm doing now is I work as a coach and a facilitator. I do individual coaching, executive coaching, uh, mostly with leaders. And I also get out and I do workshops, events, speaking in larger audiences. So I love the, the one-to-many in that context, but I also love to go deep in the coaching. I got there starting about four years ago. I left a corporate career I was in for 25 years. I was in the IT field. I worked in tech for about 25 years. And Learned a lot, but I especially learned that I love leadership. I was in leadership roles for about 10 or 12 years towards the end of that 25. And the tech piece of it kind of fell away. I wasn't in love with that, but I really loved two things I discovered. And I discovered it after I quit the job, especially. I loved helping people that I worked with, that I managed and led, develop themselves and get to places that they didn't realize they could go. And I loved helping teams work better together and kind of get over some of the the challenges they faced in collaborating and have a great time and do some kick-ass work. Uh, So when I quit my job four years ago, I ran into somebody who went through the same coaching program you and I did. She asked me that question of what did you love to do? And I answered with that, uh, those two things. And she said, oh, coaching might be for you. That's uh, kind of how I got here. So you mentioned that you zeroed in on the fact that you love leadership and developing people maybe a little bit afterwards but in the time when you were through your career as an executive leader in the tech field when did you start being intentional about how you wanted to lead your teams and what were some of the aha moments maybe some good and maybe some more challenges that led you to develop what you wanted to be your leadership style i'm of a mind that there are a couple of ways that we tend to learn some is by having really great models, things that people that show us ways to be great leaders, great parents, great whatever. And then there's the other, which is, for example, you work for a boss that isn't a great leader and really creates a lot of challenges for you. And I experienced a series of those where I worked for leaders who had their ego first, who didn't really listen to the team. And those were formative for me. I realized that 
as I was climbing the ranks, and you know, this is when I was in more middle management positions, I was experiencing leadership like that. I said, that's not how I want to be if I get to that rung on the ladder. And so as I continued to develop in my career and advance into roles where I had more responsibility, what I wanted to do was to sort of pay it forward and be a different kind of leader where I listened to what the team needed and not what I felt, you know, like I didn't need to be the, the strongest voice in the room all the time. I needed to be strong, but I needed to also be flexible and to be able to listen so that my team wouldn't end up feeling the way that I ended up feeling when I had bosses who were pedantic and kind of had to always be right. I love the thing that you said about not needing to be the strongest voice in the room, because I think that in the evolution of leadership, you know, one's leadership, that, you know, as you transition through middle management, that is one of the hardest transition to make for an individual. Because to get up to that level, you need to be a strong voice. What were some of the moments that made it easier for you to say, okay, I don't need to be the strong voice of the room, you know, like I can pull back here. I remember working for a tech startup company. Uh, this was in the early 2010s. I left a big corporate setting where I had a really comfortable job to go for something a little more exciting. And I was managing this small kind of scrappy team, pretty young uh, team that I was in charge of. And they didn't know each other. They didn't really work well together. They had a ton of client work on their plate, and not a lot of organization. And I came in there and I realized like I could just try and tell them all what to do. And I, I think I tried that a little bit for like a couple of weeks. And then I realized like, wait, they know more than I do actually about this field. I was kind of moving to a different branch of the IT tree a little bit. And what I did instead was I, I decided to tap into their energy and to get them engaged in how are we going to make this work? Like really just setting like, here's the vision. Here's how we could really succeed as a team. And I made it a little bit of a game. I made it competitive. We had three business units. And I said, we're going to be the best unit in this company because we've got everything we need. We just need to put it all together. And I need you guys to tell me, like, what can you do? And they loved it. They really took off. They took the competition Seriously, it was healthful competition too. It wasn't, we were rubbing in anybody's nose in it. We were actually raising the, the tide for the organization. And it was just one of those moments where I, I, I the light bulb kind of went off. I was like, oh, it's not about me. It's about them. And how do I create the conditions where they get to thrive? Because then I'm doing great. So that's a big risk to take, right? You're stepping in a new leadership role and you're like, okay, I'm going to give control to my team. What are some of the conditions that need to be present in order for you to be able to, not comfortably, because I don't think it, especially the first time it's ever a comfortable move, but to be sort of like, okay, I can make this, try, I can try this. What I had to do was get that team to recognize that they were there for each other. So for me, it was creating a space where they could connect as people first. I needed trust. In, in the team, you know, bottom line. And I was totally rolling the dice. I mean, I had no playbook for this. I was like, I, it was kind of like, I don't know what to do to make this team succeed. So let me bring them into it. And I recognized pretty quickly that they didn't all trust each other. They didn't understand what they knew, what they could rely on each other for. 
And so I would bring them together, you know, when we have our team meetings or you know, get out for, for a beer after work and just make sure that we kind of got some of that person to person conversation going where they got to develop relationships and they got to trust each other as people because they cared about each other. You know, like, oh, let me pick you up. Let me help you out there. So I think that was probably the, the key strategy for me was, was fostering a, a real sense of teamwork. If you think about somebody who is in that position, not maybe necessarily at the highest level of the organization. So what type of support would, would they need from the leader above to, to get into a situation where they're not as directive and they're taking risks? What I know I needed, what I think is helpful in that situation, if you're kind of in that next tier down, is to have a little bit of a leash, to have, you know, there's some runway. Okay, I, I know that you're not going to have the results tomorrow, but that, you know, over the next three months, the next six months, that's what we're going to be measuring. We're not going to measure day by day so that you can experiment, you can, you can try out, like, how do I build this? But also, the other thing I really needed was clarity. Like that gamification that I put in for my team, I had a really clear target for us to hit. And I could make it super simple to say, like, this is what needs to get done. And now you guys can figure out how. So they didn't have to guess at like, what am I trying to get done today? I could be super clear with them and we had metrics and we could measure it and we could say like, yeah, we, we did, we got the job done or not. We came this close. We exceeded it by that much. But then the how of it, I just let them run with it. So I think, you know, one of the models that I talk with leaders about often is that why lives at the top of the organization and should be imbued throughout the organization what is also cascading down, but how should be really coming from bottom up. Um, I think that's, for me, that one of the healthiest models out there. Yeah, I completely agree with this. And, you know, it seems really easy and simple to grasp, but not always. <laughs> Hard to implement. Right? Because people feel that if they don't control the how, yes, then the what is not going to happen. Exactly. So this was a successful experience. I'm, is there like a, a moment, a career setback that maybe helped you grow? And would you be willing to share it with us? Yeah, in that same organization, I ended up succeeding in the role that we were just talking about. And I moved up into executive leadership of the organization. Then I eventually got promoted to president of the organization. And then I burned out. Uh, I burned out hard. I had to walk away from the company for a month to take care of my mental health and my physical health and my emotional health. And I was going through a lot at that period of time, both personally and professionally. But what had happened on the professional side, well, I guess on, on all sides, but if I focus on the professional side is along the way, as I accumulated more responsibility and more authority in the organization, I didn't let go of things that I should have let go of. I just kept holding on to more and more. And I got to a point where I had, I was, still overseeing a lot of client accounts. I was managing way more people than I needed to. And I was trying to lead this company through a next round of growth and not letting go as much as I, I probably knew that I should, you know, based on my prior experiences, I hit this point where I kind of collapsed and it was really rough in all, all sorts of ways. So at that moment, what were some of the steps that you took? to kind of take a pause and reset? Taking the pause was probably the hardest part of it. 
because I had to admit that I couldn't handle what was going on, that I had taken on too much, that I just had too many things going on in my life. I had lost my grandmother, who was a caregiver uh, throughout my life. Very recently, I had just gone through a divorce, trying to figure out how to be a single parent. I had all this work responsibility that I didn't want to let go of because I was trying to be successful. And so admitting all of that and taking the step away to say, hey, I need to just take a, a, a leave of absence was the hardest thing. And I ended up taking a month. And actually, I wasn't even the president then. I was under consideration for it. We hadn't created the president role. I got promoted to be president as I came back from that leave. And for me to then try and take a step back was, you know, I didn't do it well. I'll say that. It took me, you know, another year to recognize that I was still overdoing it. And I had to say, okay, I'm prioritizing my kids first, my health, and also the work that I do. I had to really recalibrate and say, how much energy can I give? So I wanted to do so well. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to do well for the people who trusted me in a leadership role. And I was putting more into it than I had. And I had to really reconcile with, you know, that that's not going to sustain me in the long run. You've used the term a couple of times as you're describing this. I wanted to succeed. I wanted to succeed. How has your definition of success changed over time? It's gotten a whole lot broader. I'll say that. You and I both are familiar with a tool called the Wheel of Life that looks at all the different wedges of our life, and that's money and career and family and friends and ex, you know health and entertainment. And I I really strive to have a a more rounded approach in all of those. So I, it used to be that I felt that I had to succeed in my career, and that was primary and first and foremost. And almost everything else took not just a backseat, but it was kind of in the trunk, and Today, as we were talking a little bit before the show, uh, before we started taping, you know, my goals are way different in terms of work. I want to have impact on people and help them live better lives. I want to work enough that I can support my family and I want to be around for them. I've got kids. I want to go see their soccer games. I want to see their you know, cross-country meets. I want to you know, be around for the things that matter. Uh, and I want to be taking care of myself and be connected to my community. I want to be able to enjoy life while I'm doing work that matters and feels important. Yeah, that's why you're here. Because like, I think that feels so familiar yeah. to me. <laughs> so one thing that I'm interested in, a lot of our definition of success initially that is connected with the traditional parameters of career, you know, title, compensation, often is externally driven, right? Was there a moment in your career when you started sort of looking at what was external and what was internal and how was dealing with that moment for you? Yeah, it was a slow motion moment and bringing something a little bit unconventional here. A bunch of years ago, probably 10 years ago or so, I started attending Al-Anon recovery groups, 12-step program for people who dealt with you know, addiction in relationships, people that they, they knew and their families and, and such. And through that program, I started to recognize that so much of what drove me was external validation. I needed approval. I needed to, to show status to feel like I was doing enough that I was enough. And as soon as I, you know, it took me a while to recognize that and, and to, well, I actually recognized it pretty early, but to actually accept it and own it and say like, yeah, I, I have choices here. Once I did that, it became a lot easier to let go of the need for 
the title, the salary, the you name it, all the, those external markers of my own success and to say, how do I feel successful inside? Um, so that's a, you know, not necessarily the path that, that everybody takes. And sometimes we need a different, uh, you know, influence to help us see the perspective that we're not seeing as we're you know, kind of playing the same game. And that really shook me up in a positive way. So if somebody were right now and there, you know, a lot of pressure in different places, what are some of the questions that they could ask themselves to start figuring out how much of the goals that they set up for themselves are goals that are authentic to them or that they really want to attain and how much is it outside? The primary question that I would ask is what do I want? And I remember asking myself or having that question just kind of fall into my head one day, many, many years ago and recognizing that I didn't have an answer. I had stopped knowing what I actually wanted. I had disconnected so much from my own needs, just being on the path and, and trying to, to do what was expected of me, that I didn't know what was it that I wanted for myself. And I spend a lot of time working with my clients and with organizations around creating visions, because I think it's like, what's the future you want to create for you, for your organization, for your team? And if we don't know that, we don't know what we want, we're not going to get it more, more likely than not. And so looking at what do I want? And then also, where am I at? There's some gap in there. Right? What do I need to do to then cross that gap? What do I have to let go of? What, what has to die in me in order for me to, to make that move into the place that like, I would feel really great. I would feel, you know, to, to the you know, name of your, your show, I, I'd feel authentic. I'll just ask you, what is authenticity to you? For me, it's it's dropping the pretenses of what I should be. I had a, a mentor of mine teach me a great lesson several years ago, which is stop shooting on yourself. You know, don't let the world should on you either. You know, the word should, when I hear it, I'm like, oh, I should be doing this. I should be driving that car. I should be making this much money. I know I'm not authentic to myself. I'm not coming from inside, I'm looking outside and saying, oh, I, I need to be something for somebody else. We've touched upon this topic. Obviously, it's come up through your story. You are now writing a book, which is coming out, I think. Actually, you didn't, you're not writing. You wrote it because it's coming out about burnout. And so what I would love to do for our listeners is sort of help them frame what is burnout what are the red flags maybe when you are still within a place where you can avoid it? And then if you find yourself in it, what are some of the steps that you can take? Sure. So there's a, there's a lot there. I'll, I'll try and t hit on all of that, but feel free to you know, follow back up if I miss anything. Uh, the classic symptoms of burnout, and this is a condition that's recognized by the World Health Organization as of 2019. It's exhaustion. That can be emotional, mental, physical, spiritual. So exhaustion is the first one. Cynicism, you know, that often will show up in things like, you know, it is what it is, or can't do anything about it. It, it sucks, you know, just a kind of that cynical approach to life or work, whatever it might be. And then a sense of inefficacy or a lack of accomplishment. I don't feel like I can get things done like I used to. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm moving in wet cement. Uh, and I hear these kinds of things from the people that come to me, not saying I feel burned out all the time, but saying things that are the, the code switch for it. 
And I think one of the things that we can see in terms of like, if we're looking for it in ourselves or in other people is when you notice a situation that doesn't seem to be fine in the person saying, I'm fine. It's fine. When we're run down, when we're just not, when that energy isn't there that we used to have, you know, I played baseball throughout high school and, and I was a pitcher and, you know, my, if, if I can't get the fastball to where it used to be metaphorically, I got to look at that and say like, am I burned out? And, and I really think it is looking at a, a spectrum of, you know, burnout isn't one thing, right? It's not on or off. It's a spectrum that we grow across and I might be exhausted and cynical, but I might still be getting things done or I might, you know, feel cynical and I'm getting things done, but I'm exhausted. Right. So it, it can, it can take a lot of different shapes and just looking at like, do I feel okay? is probably a, a great baseline question to ask. And then maybe do a little bit of a, a survey of people who care about you and say like, Hey, what are you seeing about me? What's, what's going on? I think I got to most of your question, but probably not to what can we do about it? You added a little comment in there that spurred a different question, which I think is really important. So what can we do to survey the people around us? Are the people who are either our colleagues at work or our family members or our friends for symptoms of burnout? Yeah, so if we're reaching out to other people to, to try and assess what people who know us and care about us see what's going on for us, I think it's asking uncomfortable questions. So asking people like, hey, do I seem off to you? Am I being difficult? What are you seeing in me right now that's not my best? And just being really open to that feedback, not being defensive, getting curious to say like, hey, I'm not feeling quite right. Could you just give me a sanity check of what you're seeing? And allowing those people to care for you. And some of what I write about in, in the book is that I write particularly about men and burnout. And this is a hard conversation because guys have been socialized in our culture, in Western culture, to not ask for help and not to reach out with those kinds of questions because it seems weak. And let me tell you, it's not. The consequence of not doing it is a hell of a lot worse than taking that risk to say, hey, could you share with me what you're seeing in me? Because something ain't feeling right. And that might be all you know is like something ain't feeling right. On the other side, if we are one of those peers, as you said, right, the hardest thing in everything that's mental health related, it's taking that first step to ask for help because there's always a little bit of stigma attached. So if you are at work with some of your colleagues or some of your peers in your life and you start seeing something in one of them, what is a way for you to actually practically help that person? The way that I tend to approach that, if, if I get an opportunity or I see somebody struggling, is not to come in and diagnose them, not to tell them what what's going on for them, but rather to say something like, you know, hey, Dino, I've noticed recently that you seem to be stressed out or that you look tired or there have been three times in the past two days where you've forgotten something that you normally remember. Are you okay? Is there anything that's going on? And, you know, try and make it an open invitation. And I specifically try to use words like I notice because it's just, it's my perspective on what's going on for you. And it's not saying what's actually going on. It's my perspective only. And that's oftentimes what people need is just to see a perspective reflected to them and to do it in a, in a way that's gentle. That's not saying like, Hey dude, what's going on? You keep screwing up. 
that's not going to get anybody to say, oh, I feel better. Or, I feel bad and I want to get better. It's, they're probably going to double down and work harder. And in terms of the places to start getting formal help, what are some of the first places that, you know, after you've had this conversation with your friends, you recognize that you may be going through this, what are some of the first places that you could go to get formal help? Yeah, there are a few trusted places that I would look to, and it, it's going to depend on your situation, of course. So if you have a mentor, a boss, a HR leader, somebody in the organization who is a, a confidant for you that you can have vulnerable conversations with, that's a great resource to, to check into first. If you don't have that, or if it doesn't feel safe to do that because it, it presents some some risk for you in your career or whatever it might be, reaching out to a therapist or a coach um, where you're going to get confidentiality, you're going to get people who are trained uh, to work in these kind of spaces where you get to process what's actually going on and then learn like, okay, what do I need to do? What are the new choices to make? What are the options that I have, the strategies I can employ? So those are three three things that I would uh, point anybody towards. That's great. And I know you do some of this work also with organizations to to train the organization to recognize that. So if you're thinking at it a, a little more systematically, if you're either like a leader of a department or somebody in HR and you want to start saying, okay, I need to start taking a look at this, what are some of the steps that you can take and some of the practices that you can adopt? The first thing to me is getting a leadership conversation going on because in a in an organizational setting, burnout is often happening because of the the tone that's being set by leadership, the goals that, that the organization has. And these are big things that if we're addressing burnout, we might have a short-term adjustment period that are going to affect those. But the other reason that leaders are so important in that context is we play follow the leader. The modeling of behavior at the top of the organization is so powerful so if you say, yeah, we want you to have work-life balance, we want you to leave work at five and go home to your family, but then you're sending emails at 7.30 at night as a, you know, a C-suite executive, your people are going to be looking for those and they're going to want to respond because they want to be, <laughs> they want to be seen as, as dedicated and doing well and, 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 and caring, right? So that modeling is crucial, crucial, crucial. The other thing just in terms of, you know, tooling that I think doesn't get enough attention is there are some valid and useful burnout assessments. So like if you think burnout lives in your organization, there's an assessment called the Maslach Burnout Inventory that was created 30 years ago. Uh, and it has an associated piece that starts to look at um, what's causing burnout. So you can measure burnout in your organization. What is the degree of exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy in your organization? And what are the causes? There are six causes that typically are, you know, they're going to be sliders for each different person, but, you know, where are they getting into burnout from and having some data around it, especially in our modern world, like we want data, we want to be able to capture, like, is this really a problem? What's the extent of it? Um, I don't see that, that tool being used nearly enough. So this actually sparked a different question. So burnout is caused by a combination of internal and external factors. And some external factors are unmovable. If you are experiencing this, what are some of the factors that you need to look at in the organization that you're working at to figure out, you know, no matter how much work I do on myself, ain't gonna change, it's time to kind of like 
make a serious move? Yeah, I want to address that a couple different ways. So one of the factors that I often see in organizations that is immutable, at least in the short term, is the amount of workload. And workload is one of the six factors that drive people into burnout. So if you can't change workload, well, what can you do around reward? What can you do around fairness? What can you do around values? What can you do around community? Right? There's all these different ways that we can deal with it. It's not that there's one thing that we, we have to fix in order to stop burnout from happening. Um, so from an organizational strategy standpoint, educating yourself about like what are the ways that we can help our employees? What can we create in the culture that makes it so that yeah, we're going to have 60-hour weeks? We're in the consulting business. like We can't change that because that's the business model. What else can we do? Right? On the personal side, if you continue to bump up against it and you can't get what you know you need, making that decision to leave is really hard. Uh, there's a, a colleague of mine, Grant Gerowitz, who's doing some really great work on looking at like, how do you leave burnout without leaving your job? And he's got some great tools. And I would, I would certainly recommend checking his work out. If you feel like you need to leave, and that's where I eventually got to in my career. And it was because of internal, like I knew for me, I was a single parent with three kids who wanted to be a great dad. It's my number one value in the world. And I knew at the age and stage of life that my kids were at, working in a 40 hour a week desk job or 60 hour a week desk job pulled me away from them too much. It, it was, it was stepping on my own personal values too much. And I think until I knew my values, I didn't know what decision to make when I was really clear on who I was and who I wanted to be in the world, then I could say, Oh, this is irreconcilable for me. And I'm not saying that's the truth for, for everyone. That's an individual decision, but getting super clear about like, can I live the life that I value according to the things that matter the most to me and do this job with its constraints? If you can't reconcile that, then it may be time to look at, all right, maybe there's another another solution. And, and I'll say, if you get to that point, there is a solution. There are plenty of ways to climb the mountain. So one of the things that's most interesting to me is that when you are at that point, it can be very hard to leave the situation without feeling that you failed, right? Yes, absolutely. What are some of the factual things that you can look at to say sort of like, you know, it's not me, it's you, if you will, to help yourself get through that? Yeah, I mean, I come back to the shoulds, right? That, that sense of being authentic. Well, am I being authentic as an employee of XYZ company? And so I have to abide by the rules of, of engagement for that. Or am I being authentic to myself? Am I leading my own, right? If I'm an authentic leader, well, that's, that's not just in my, you know, the place I get a paycheck. That's everywhere. And so, you know, knitting those things together, like looking at what I was just talking about with values, like, am I honoring myself? And trusting that honoring yourself means you're going to do fine in your career, whether it's in place or somewhere else. It's a leap of faith. I totally get it. And when I, when I took that leap of faith, I walked into my boss's office with a resignation letter and no plan. Again, would not recommend for everyone, but there are ways, and especially when you reach out to, to the people around you to help you and get support in that, people want to help. People want to help you when you're in a struggle and you decide you have to make a, a change. They're out there. As Mr. Rogers said, look for the helpers. I'm smiling about what you said a little earlier. 
because the whole foundation of this podcast is that if you're intentional about articulating your values and then disciplined about making all your choices in life according to those values, not only you will be happier, but you will also be more effective, so ultimately successful. And I think you just articulated that. So yeah, <laughs> I really like that. That's why I love what you're doing and wanted to be on the show. <laughs> and that is why you're on the show. I want to make a little bit of a shift here. So obviously the term burnout has been coming out a lot these days and it's been coming out within the context of another conversation that has raged uh, in LinkedIn posts and in business magazines and newspapers, like literally the last two or three weeks, it's everything everybody's talking about. And that's a conversation around the term quiet quitting. And you and I had a little bit of an exchange about it, but I want to make a little bit of an exception for something that I normally don't do in my podcast. And I'm going to insert my own personal opinion. So the term quiet quitting is one of the most unfortunate terms to become popular. And that is because it creates confusion. You know, I think in some ways, the fact that the word quitting is used has given rise to a proliferation of some of the myths around the only definition of success is leaving through your work. You only are alive if you're fully dedicated to work. And if you're not, and you're not doing what expected from the work, then you're not performing. So I'm assuming you've had conversations with people that are working on these topics and on other topics in your space. And I would love to hear your perspective about this. My perspective on it is that it's a sign of, of the lack of health in the system. If people at the lower rungs of the ladder, uh, and this is where this is coming from, right, is employees who don't feel empowered to orchestrate organizational change that feels healthy for them. If their only avenue is to close the laptop at 5 p.m. and walk out and to only do the bare minimum that's assigned to them and whatever all the other tentacles of quiet quitting are, it's a message. And I think if we're if you're a leader, seeing that either in your organization or just in the macro environment, listening to that and saying, okay, what is that telling me? Like, what is it that is causing this groundswell of people? And you could blame it on TikTok, because I think that was where that, that hashtag started or that, that, that term came up was in a viral TikTok video. But it's real. Where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And if, if we've been hearing about burnout for years, and sure, the pandemic fanned the flames, but they, the embers already existed, and quiet quitting is the latest sign of it, are we doing something about it? Are we taking it seriously and saying, it's not just time to you know, get people back to the grindstone? What are the conditions that we, we need to create as leaders so that we have energy in our organizations that's not about, I'll do the bare minimum? Yeah. And the other thing is, where is the boundary and, and what is the real definition of expectations? Because you know, on one hand, the push is like, well, you should do more than what's, what is the bare minimum expected. But on the other side, why is that onus not put on the organization as well? I don't hear the organization say, oh, I'm going to pay you X more than what was in the contract, or I'm going to do X things more to make your environment better. So where is the boundary of when it is quiet quitting versus somebody who is just trying to have a life and trying to be realized as a person outside of work as well? Yeah, I think what you're calling out is that there are strata in terms of that quiet quitting revolution, right? There are the people who are like, kind of screw you, boss, I'm just gonna 
you know, do enough so you don't fire me. And then there are people who are like, I'm going to work really hard right up until the line that I've set and then I'm, I'm out and I'm doing really good work and I should be compensated and rewarded and recognized and promoted and, and all those things. To me, it's got to be a dialogue. And there's so much division, it seems like, in the employer-employee sphere right now. And this is long running, right? I think, you know, we go back to Jack Welch's bottom 10. I think that's a seminal moment in, in American work culture of the lack of loyalty that employers have for employees. And that's, that's fostered lack of loyalty from employees to employers. And we're trying to get through it with achievement and engagement and all these other things. But like, we need to have the conversation. We need to be talking about like, what are the conditions that we want to create, not the conditions I'm going to impose on you or the conditions that I'm going to rebel against and impose on you quietly. That's not getting us anywhere. Yeah. And I feel, you know, there's an underlying conversation around leverage. And this is a personal and biased view. I think there's a belief that the shift of the leverage towards the employee in many cases is not a permanent one, but I think it is. If you look from uh, you know, the era when you and I have worked, we started working in investment bank in 92, coming in on the tail end of the still, the, the last vestiges of the 1989 sort of big M&A crash when all the investment banks were cutting personnel, and then lived through the dot-com boom and crash, and then lived through that other boom, through the mortgage crisis and crash, and then the subsequent boom until sort of the beginning of the pandemic. And if you look, you know, when I look at my experience of the workplace, it's like, oh, here is 1997 and all my business school classmates who were like first or second year associates in investment banks were getting massive offers to be promoted two or three levels because the, the thinning of the ranks in the years before had created a lack of qualified people in that middle management. Then... It, after the dot-com crash, there was like a couple of years where, you know, it was a tough job market, but then all of a sudden for like 10 years, five, six years until 2008, it was really hard to recruit good talent. And then we went through the same. And, and I think that the cycle to me seems to be that you have this one or two years hold in a crisis, but then you have like this five or six years where like finding and retaining good talent is really difficult. And so when I look at the conversation around quiet quitting, some of me says, well, you can go back and, and push back and, and take a very top-down approach. But in the long run, for me, the companies that will have success are the ones that understand what's underneath it and adapt to work in, if you will, a new paradigm. I 100% agree, especially about that last point that a new paradigm, I, I think that's, I, I hope that's what we're moving towards. Because you use the word leverage. And I think it's a really dangerous word. If I need to have leverage over you, whether I'm the employee or the employer, well, that tells me something about the nature of the relationship. It tells me that we're adversarial and that we're looking for advantages against the other we're not together. We're not acting as a an us unit. And that to me is the paradigm shift. And I've done a lot of study and conversation with a bunch of folks around organizational development theories, spiral dynamics, or teal organization theory. 
that is about organizations that remove the hierarchical power structures. And it, it seems radical to a lot of people. It seems countercultural. And there are some amazing examples of organizations that are having incredible success, incredible experiences for their employees. Their customers are super satisfied and they've decentralized so much of the power structure so that it's not this us versus them game, which turns toxic eventually in one direction or the other or, or both. I agree with you 100%. And the reason why I'm using the term leverage is that when I see the response from a certain group of managers and leaders in the conversation around why you should go back to the office or in the conversation about quiet quitting, it's all about, ha, now the recession is coming and you're going to be forced to come back. And I think that when I am agreeing with you, what I'm saying is that the companies and the leader who are going to take the word leverage out of the discourse are the ones that ultimately are going to win in the marketplace. Yeah. And I, I love this topic because it's like winning at what cost? And, and does winning mean that somebody else has to lose? Is it a zero sum game that, you know, I got to get my way and the other one doesn't? And these are fascinating things for us to be considering as leaders in particular is like, is it what we want? Do, do we want to have to use leverage in order to get the conditions that we think are going to lead to success? Or is there a different conversation to be having? Yeah. So maybe let's talk about thriving long-term in the marketplace versus winning, right? Yeah. Because thriving re requires that we all are doing well, not one or the other. Exactly. So I think that's a great point to finish our sort of work part of the conversation. I'm going to move to more of the personal. And I'm hoping secretly open to know the answer to this next question, which is, do you have a passion or a hobby that is important to you? And has that in any way, shape or form help you in your professional life? Do you know, I think you know the answer to this question from our uh, years of knowing one another. Yeah, it's improv comedy. Did you have the right answer? You did. <laughs> yeah, I knew you had it. Yeah, I... Uh, seven years ago, a little over seven years ago, I discovered improv comedy. I had seen my kids doing it as an after school activity and I took a workshop and it lit me up. I had so much fun, but over time, it's changed my operating system at work, as a parent, as a friend, this full life operating system swap where I now approach with so much more openness, so much more acceptance, so much more presence, that the moment that we're in right now is unfolding right in front of us. We don't need a script. We don't need to have a, have to figure it out. We get to respond to each other. And one of my favorite tenets of improv, a lot of people know Yes And, and it's, it's a beautiful structure to talk all day about it. But another one that I love is a tenet that says, make your scene partner look great. My only job if my only job is to make my scene partner look great and their only job is to make me look great, well, our jobs just got a lot easier because we're supporting each other. We're looking out for each other and we're also bringing our gifts to the scene. Fabulous. Next question. There are expressions or business cliches or practices that get way overused and get tiring. Which is the one that drives you crazy? engagement there and in particular i'll bring it back to something i mentioned earlier the maslach burnout inventory which is the gold standard for measuring burnout says the opposite end of burnout of that spectrum is engagement and i don't agree i think engagement has gotten 
twisted into something that causes people to burn out. We encourage engagement. And I, I, that was one of mine was I worked for this company where the more you could do, the more you could be recognized. And I was fully engaged in my work to the detriment to myself personally. And so I, I think engagement is a really slippery and dangerous term. That is a great answer. Fascinating. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can pick either a recipe or a drink or go into the soul side book, song, play, movie, piece of music, art, something that inspires you. Wow. When you said song, I hadn't considered that. I've got a whole playlist that I put in my book because music is a huge part of my life. But, but the food part of it is essential to me. And it's what I call Nettie spaghetti sauce. My grandmother's name was Jeanette, but she went by Nettie to all of her friends. And I grew up on her coattails watching her at least once a week make this homemade spaghetti sauce. So the, the crushed tomatoes and the tomato paste and the, the sausage and the, the spices and the peppers and the mushrooms and just like all of the ingredients melding together and smelling. And sometimes she'd throw in some cinnamon. It was, you know, what she had in the fridge sometimes went in it. And I loved the meal. It's one of my favorite meals of all time. I miss it that she's not around. I still make it myself. Uh, maybe not as well as she did. But there's a metaphor in there of like, how do we bring in all the ingredients, whatever we've got in the moment, we've also got some standard things that we, we bring into our mix to create something that's, you know, connecting, delicious, beautiful. So Nettie spaghetti sauce take, definitely takes the prize for me. Jim, it's been great to have this conversation with you. Great catching up. Likewise. And thank you so much. It was a really powerful and helpful episode. Thanks for having me, Dino. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a good review. I will send a copy of Jim's book, Expansive Intimacy, How Tough Guys Defeat Burnout, to my favorite Apple podcast review left in September. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo. You can find Jim and information about his book on his website, thecenteredcoach.com, spelled T-H-E-C-E-N-T-E-R-E-D-C-O-A-C-H.com. And on LinkedIn, he's at linkedin.com backslash in backslash the centered coach, same as the website. You can find me online at AL4EP with the number four, and you can email me at dino at AL4EP.com. On Twitter and Instagram, follow the show at AL4EDP, and on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, recorded, and arranged by Nicholas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. The Susan Cattaneo song for today is from her first album, Brave and Wild. It's a song called Get Back the Longing, a beautiful duet with Mark Arelli. On the surface, the song is about wanting to rekindle a relationship that is fading away. But the love relationship in this case is just a metaphor. 
What Susan was writing about at the time was the burnout that she was feeling after spending many years going to Nashville to write for others, and her desire to find the original spark that had fueled her passion for music and songwriting. So it's a perfect song for today's episode. Enjoy. Since I don't know when We touch But my heart lies still And I haven't seen Lightning the way it was then So bright Behind my closed eyes When you held me tight And that ain't fair to you And it ain't right I wanna get back the longing Traffic of life And when did the distance Stop me from wishing on that star I find my way back here to where you are I feel so far I wanna get back belonging Right all the wrong and Start making sense of this mess that we're in Back to kissing you Catch my breath Missing you Just like I used to When we loved before To get back the longing That's what I'm longing Forget 